Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. So on the podcast with me today is Dr. Natalie Klein. Uh, She is a professor at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, in the Faculty of Law. She researches and teaches areas of international law, primarily focusing on the law of the sea and international dispute settlement. Natalie holds her master's and doctorates of law, both earned at Yale Law School, and currently serves as the president of the Australian branch of the International Law Association. From 2011 to 2017, she was dean of Macquarie Law School, Prior to that, Natalie worked in the international litigation and arbitration practice of Deba Vesey and Plimpton, uh, and also served as counsel for the Afri- East African government of Eritrea, and was a consulate uh, in the Office of the Legal Affairs at the United Nations. As an expert in the area of international dispute settlement and the law of the sea, Natalie has authored numerous books and other publications and continues to provide advice, undertake consultancies and interact with the media uh, and including um, podcasters like this podcast on the law um, of uh, sea issues. Hey, so welcome Natalie. How are you today? Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Oh, fantastic. Now you're calling, we're all connecting in here. Now you're, you're still based in Sydney, aren't you? Yes, that's right. So in the office at Sydney today. Great. And uh, Sydney, like uh, like Auckland, we're all still going through uh, the sort of what we're hoping is the tail end of uh, this pandemic. Uh, I've just had one of my team knocked down with uh, with COVID. Uh, how, 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 how have you been holding up from the, the COVID front? Well, I've been getting through unscathed so far that uh, it seems to be going like dominoes through my family at the moment. So perhaps it's just a matter of time, but fingers crossed I'll be the immunicorn and it'll be okay. Yeah, look, um, the experts say it's it's worth avoiding if you can. I've managed to avoid it, but uh, I've got two teenage boys. Uh, it struck them fairly quickly once our borders opened up. Uh, but, you know, teenagers, they're, uh, they're super spreaders uh, any day of the week. Hey, anyway, um, enough about COVID. Let's talk about the, the, the law of the sea, uh, international law of the sea. Um, tell, tell me a bit about you, you, yourself. You, you studied at, at Yale. Um, now, that was your master's and your, and your doctorate. Where, where did you get your undergrad degree from? I did my undergrad at the University of Adelaide. So I did a Bachelor of Arts Law there and did my honours degree with Ad, at Adelaide Uni. Oh, fantastic. South Australia, your, your, your home state? I spent most of my time growing up in Adelaide, but we moved around a little bit. When I was growing up, so Tasmania, Sydney, Darwin, then Adelaide. Okay, and uh, the the interest in in uh, international law, um, or well, t- well, first of all, tell us a bit about your studies uh, at Yale. Um, uh, what what were you focusing on? Well, I did very much focus on international law once I got there because I, I've always been interested in things international. And then when I, when I was at uni and I had the chance to study international law, I just found it really fascinating. We had a, a Jessup moot that was running there that I got to do, except that was all on non-navigational uses of international watercourses, which was somewhat challenging since we don't actually have any international rivers in Australia. Um, 
but it was a great exposure to international law and I just wanted to continue working in that area and I was looking at people who had the kind of careers that I wanted and I saw they all went off and did their masters and doctorates. So I thought, well, I'd better go and do my masters. So I applied uh, for different programs and ended up at Yale, which was which was great, and that gave me the chance to specialize in a lot of different international law subjects, including law of the sea. So that was really when I first started getting into to that area. And you know, as is so often the case, when you get a great teacher, they really inspire you in the area, and that was my case too. And how did you find it being a uh, being an Australian studying at, at one of the American uh, Ivy League schools? Uh, well, it was a little intimidating at the start. Everyone seemed very articulate and very smart and together. That scene from Legally Blonde where they all sit around and say how wonderful they are, that was very much the experience of Yale as well. Uh, but in the end, I mean, it, it was just so much to learn. It was it was a great environment. I probably only realised after I left just, you know, what a privileged environment it was to be in at the time. So, uh, it was a great experience. And then um, I take it you went from Yale and you ended up with uh, with this firm, uh, Devavossi and Plimpton. Um, where, where are they based? Uh, they're in New York City. So I had I did my masters and then I I worked full year uh, full time for a year uh, with uh, a professor at Yale who was the legal advisor to the president of Eritrea. And we were working on an arbitration between Eritrea and Yemen and then between Eritrea and Ethiopia. And because I'd done that work, then I was looking for law firms that also had international litigation um, practice. And that was Debevoise. And I did bilateral investment treaty arbitration work with them. And also uh, we had a case that went to the International Court of Justice, which was on the consular rights of uh, Mexican nationals who were held on death row in the U.S. So that was a great case to be involved in too. Oh, fascinating. There must you, look, you must have taken a lot out of uh, that experience. Yeah, it was fabulous exposure. I mean, the great thing about international law is just how it crosses into politics, into history, into geography as well. So I, I love that it's got all of that interaction uh, with those other with the other disciplines. Okay, fantastic. And now, then you ended up doing a, a stint at the UN. I take it that was in New York as well, yeah? Yes, that's right. So I did an internship there when I had just finished my law degree in Adelaide. And then once I was back in the neighbourhood, um, as Yale's in New Haven, Connecticut, about two hours from New York City, um, I was in touch with the colleagues I'd met during the internship and um, they had work that they still needed doing, so I was able to be working with them part-time uh, while I was studying and, and did uh, a short stint with them full-time when they were negotiating the convention on um, terrorist financing as well. So, wow. so lots yeah. of different exposure to areas of international law as a result of that work, but it was really interesting to see how the UN operated from the inside and uh, it was a very particular style of writing as well, uh, so that was that was a good experience to have too. And look for for our luck, and, and fortunately for us down under, you decided to return uh, back uh, back uh, to Australia, and uh, you ended up back in academia at uh, Macquarie Law School. Um, how was how was that experience for you? Uh, well, look, I had always sort of assumed that I would end up teaching that was 
just what had been in my mind uh, for some time. So I was really glad to get into the classroom and have a chance to teach uh, students all about international law and all the different things that I loved about it. I just, you know, you love that moment when you see somebody's eyes light up when they realize that they understand something or that it's exciting to them. So I really enjoy that dynamic. And also I was quite glad just to have a lot more independence when I was in the law firm. You know, I was always reporting into this hierarchy of associates, senior associates above me. And once I was in academia, I could just have my own opinions, which I didn't have to clear (laughs) with a more senior lawyer. So that was a nice, that was a nice change as well. And I had lots of great opportunities working at Macquarie. Great. And you've been able to continue uh, your interest in teaching as well as writing because, I mean, you have been quite prolific. You've uh, you've tuned out quite a few publications. Um, uh, so you're at the, at the University of New South Wales, the law school there, you're teaching as, as, well, as, um, uh, as well as continuing your, your areas of academic research here? Yeah, well, I'm quite fortunate at the moment as I've got um, an Australian Research Council Future Fellowship, so that means I don't have to teach at the moment. I still did last year to help out colleagues during everything going on. Uh, But mostly I'm just all focused on research now, which uh, I've got a couple of projects that I'm looking at, which are all international law and definitely all law of the sea related, and I'm particularly focusing a lot on maritime security issues now. So that's been been great to have that. I'm sure I'll be looking forward to getting back to the classroom in a year or two in any event. Yeah, well, look, international law is a, is quite a speciality in itself, but you've uh, you, you've gone even more particular. You've uh, your interest is the law of the sea. What what att- what attracted your, your your interest sparked that? Well, I think it was just realizing when you know you think of the seventy percent of the Earth's surface is. Um, covered by water. So the oceans actually, you know, affect so much of our lives and it was sort of waking up to this idea that so much that we depended on really came back to the oceans, whether it was fish, if you were eating eating them as part of your diet, particularly being used for transport of all the goods around the world. So something like used to be about 90% of the world's goods travelled by sea. I think that number's dropped a little in recent times, but um, it was just fascinating and it very much fed into my my interest around politics and history as well when you think about countries that were sort of claiming rights over particular islands and the waters that surrounded those islands and what were the competing claims around all of that and just, um, you know, the conservation and management aspects around the environment because especially with climate change now, the oceans are just so important to us is in terms of um, all the CO2 that gets released, but issues with the oceans for acidification too. So it just felt like there was always something going on in this area and I just wanted to know more about it. Oh, look, hey, that's, that's really interesting. Now you've mentioned maritime security. Um, what, what, what are the, the maritime security threats that are most concerning? Well, maritime security... Traditionally, it was always about the defence interests of a country. So it was the idea, you know, could we be invaded? The idea of, you know, the Japanese submarines coming into Sydney Harbour during World War II. So that's the very traditional security. But these days we think about maritime security far more broadly and the threats sort of cross between 
piracy and armed robbery. Um, so when we had all of the, the breakdown around Somalia and a lot of uh, piracy was happening in that area with Somali pirates seizing big cargo ships, uh, also maritime terrorism, there was a lot of concern after September 11 that having planes being targeted, we would end up with a ship being loaded full of explosives and being exploded in one of the megaports and disrupting global supply chains. And, you know, illegal fishing is, is a huge issue uh, as well. And particularly we know increasingly that not only is illegal fishing a problem for the resources themselves, but also for the people working in that industry because there's considerable human rights abuses tied up in that industry. So, um, so, those, so there's different sort of smuggling and transnational crime and also... Um, Irregular migration gets bundled into maritime security. So we look at it more so from a human security type of perspective now. And there's quite a few different things that fall within that. Yeah, well, I, I guess, of course, if we look at um, uh, the purpose of a, a country's navy, and if, if we bring it back to, to, to here down under, uh, look at the Australian Navy and the New Zealand Navy, you know, one of the key purposes that they both have is to ensure that... Um, uh, both countries' respective uh, territorial fishing right, um, fish, fisheries are protected, but also uh, both countries have responsibilities uh, from an international point of view, and that is to make sure that um, international treaties are, are being respected. Um, it reminds me of a, a story I was told uh, oh look, it would have been a couple of years ago of a, a New Zealand naval ship was um, doing routine patrols in the Southern Ocean um, uh, and came across uh, illegal, I think they were long-tooth fisher, you know, fishing boat getting long-tooth, mm-hmm. not supposed to do that. Uh, asked to, uh, for permission to board um, so they could carry out an inspection, uh, got radio silence from the, the ship, the captain, which then um, led to, and I, this surprised me, um, I'd be interested in, in your comments whether you've come across or heard anything like this, it, it led to this New Zealand naval ship chasing this fishing boat uh, three quarters of the way around the globe to somewhere off uh, southern Africa at which point yep. the, the captain scuttled the boat. Um, they sank it. Um, and I thought, God, you know, there apparently was a, a, about a month-long chase. Um, I, I would have thought, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're lucky that it was a bunch of Kiwi uh, uh, naval uh, naval personnel um, because if it had been uh, a, another country, they might have just said, look, we'll, we'll save you the, the hassle, we'll, 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 we'll sink the boat for you unless you let us um, um, carry out the inspection. Uh, I mean, ha- have you heard of these sorts of stories before? Oh, absolutely. There's There's been a few spectacular hot pursuits, as they're known, happening, uh, particularly from Antarctic waters where the Patagonian toothfish trade has been huge and... And I, I think that particular hot pursuit made the news at the time because it was so long. I mean, normally, normally hot pursuits don't last for a month, and and partly that's just because the the ships run out of petrol and they run out of supplies. So there's been some discussion as a legal matter as to whether if one country sort of starts a hot pursuit, could they hand over the hot pursuit? To another country, so if the ship comes close to South Africa, could South African authorities then take it over? And can you still exercise jurisdiction if another country has become involved? And I know Australia and France have entered into treaties around that to allow for that sort of 
shift in jurisdiction around it. But um, yeah, it, it's you know it's part of the battle against illegal fishing is pretty serious about trying to get the vessels to stop. And Australia does has an approach where you know it it might arrest an a vessel and potentially. Uh, they'll scuttle that ship itself as part of the enforcement just to stop the, the ship going back out to sea. Australia tried to introduce um, a, an approach where if a foreign ship fishing vessel was arrested, then the Australian authorities wanted to put like a vessel monitoring system on it so they would be able to track where the ship went after that and they wanted all the information about the beneficial ownership. But... Um, the ship just resisted all those efforts. It went up to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea and they said, no, Australia couldn't have that information. All it could do was set a financial bond for them to pay and then they could be released. So um, it's it's a tricky area in trying to get these, these acts stopped and states try a lot of different tactics to try and get to the heart of the industry. Yeah, well, you know, look, there's a lot of money at stake, whether it's fisheries or smuggling, etc. Um, mm, the, um, the the international tribunal uh, for the law of the sea. Um, have I look? Have, have I got that right? Is that what the tribunal's called? Yes, that's yeah. yes, that's what it's called. Okay. Now, where, where does it sit? Well, that's based in Hamburg. So, under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, whenever a state becomes a party to that convention, they also consent. Um, to jurisdiction to be exercised by actually it's one of they, they have a, states have a choice they can either go to the international tribunal for the law of the sea or they can choose the international court of justice or they can go to ad hoc arbitration or they could potentially choose a special arbitration uh, which is kind of focused on particular issue areas so you get people with fishery expertise for example so mostly the cases are going either to ITLOS, as we call it, or to uh, ad hoc arbitration. If states have chosen different courts, then it goes to ad hoc arbitration as the default. Or if they don't choose, then it goes to them as default. So that's how we ended up, for example, uh, Australia and New Zealand were able to take a case against Japan. They started that under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And they sought provisional measures that went to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea and then the dispute was heard by an Annex 7 as its known tribunal uh, on Australia and New Zealand's claims against Japan for taking too many southern bluefin tuna as part of an experimental fishing program. So those, those courts exist and they're used and they're being used by Australia and New Zealand. How did, how did that uh, case turn out? What was the outcome of that case? Well, Australia and New Zealand were successful in getting provisional measures, which was essentially requiring all of the three states not to take any more southern bluefin tuna in excess of their national allocations. And then the case went to the Annex 7 arbitration. Japan challenged the jurisdiction of the tribunal, saying this is really a dispute that needs to be resolved. Uh, in the Commission on the Conservation of Southern bluefin tuna, and the tribunal looked at the rules under UNCLOS and said, "Oh, that's actually right." So, under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea or UNCLOS, if there's another forum available that should be used if various conditions are met, then it should go there instead. And the tribunal sort of kicked the dispute to that other mechanism in, instead of making a decision on the merits. 
So it wasn't a good outcome for Australia and New Zealand in terms of, you know, finding that Japan had violated international law or anything like that. But it did at least sort of send all the parties back to negotiations and they continued talking and reached an agreement around that particular dispute. So so it was helpful, but not entirely satisfactory for Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, but I, I guess at least um, there is a mech- you know there are these mechanisms that you've mentioned that are in place, uh, which uh, creates forums where differences can be uh, discussed, debated, hopefully resolved, um, rather than the alternatives which we're, we're now seeing um, can take place in the in the likes of uh, the Ukraine, which is which is quite horrific um, when you know one country just decides that it's going to have its way through force. Um, anyway, mm. one of the things that you did mention, Natalie, that I, that I was really interested in and wanted to see if we could dive a bit into it is, is when you were talking about maritime security, I think you mentioned, you know, a bit of a focus on, on human rights and, and, and that's a related topic, isn't it? Human rights at sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's been quite difficult because there's been this sort of blinkered view that human rights really only apply on land and then once you're at sea there's this sort of free-for-all because it's unclear in some instances which state is responsible for upholding human rights but I think we're now at a point where it's become so obvious that there are so many problems that um, it really is an issue of concern I think for many states and that they do need to be far more cognizant of the fact that they have responsibilities to uphold human rights on the ships that are flagged to them and when those ships come into port or in their waters. So I think states need to start getting a bit more proactive. To be a good international citizen, um, each nation needs to um, play its part in in ensuring that there aren't these human rights abuses. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, it's not just being good international citizens as they've got obligations under human rights treaties and human rights law themselves to respect human rights. So uh, so if a vessel is sort of within their effective control or within their jurisdiction, then they, they should be acting. Yeah. Now, as a bit of guidance around this, there is the, uh, the Geneva Declaration for Human Rights at Sea, and I sort of noted in my research that that's, that declaration's open for, for public consultation until the 1st of September uh, this year is have I have I got that right? Yes, that's right. Okay, and um, I, I mean I, I take it that uh, with the, the consultative process following that there'll be a move by uh, the, um, the the members of the UN you know UN member countries to to, to start formally adopting what what will be ultimately I guess the the the, the final declaration. Mm. Well, just uh, to give you a little bit of background on that. So the Geneva Declaration on Human Rights at Sea has been drafted by an NGO known as Human Rights at Sea, which is based in the UK and it's been in operation for about seven, seven or eight years now. And just to disclose, I have recently joined Human Rights at Sea as one of their trustees, so hence I know a little bit about what they're, they're doing and trying to do. Oh, congratulations. Um, when, when was that appointment? It's uh, just been announced yesterday. So, okay. um, Hot off the press. It, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Breaking news. Okay. How, how, many, uh, how, many, it, how many trustees are there? 
Uh, I think there's about a dozen of us crossing different areas around, you know, because they're trustees of a charity, so we each have different domains of expertise and um, also uh, just appointed as another trustee who has a background in sort of modern slavery practices and working for another NGO. So I'm sort of coming in with the legal expertise and there are others who have expertise in accounting as well as and corporate governance as well as the substantive areas that are covered. Okay, so the, this Human Rights at Sea uh, NGO is uh, focusing and, and uh, working in particular on, on, on what projects? Yeah, so so the Geneva Declaration is an initiative that um, they have been pursuing and they've recently had adopted this uh, declaration and it's set up in such a way that the intention is it's almost like a multi-pronged strategy. On the one hand, the document sets out the fundamental principles, which at the end of the day is that human rights apply at sea as they do on land. That's kind of the core thrust of it. So, and then so it's that they're, also they're, about they're, uni- they're universal. So it doesn't matter whether you're, uh, exactly. you're, you're standing on the beach or, or, or you're on the boat, um, uh, you, you, the human you rights You still apply. have your human rights. Yeah. And, and also that they, you know, apply to everyone. You're not excluded from human rights just because you're an irregular migrant or something like that. So, so that's sort of your core starting position. And then yeah. the, one of the, the really useful things about the Geneva Declaration is it goes through and provides guidelines about how each state, whether it's a coastal state, whether it's a port state, whether it's a flag state, so it's got ships registered to it, um, how they're supposed to, you know, have human rights um, recognised and when they're supposed to act and when they need to provide remedies as well. So and is um, a- it's been done in a way that to make it quite accessible so, so hopefully it can get adopted into policy relatively easily. But it's still at a very early stage and we'll need to get states and countries on board. Uh, so, Natalie, you've mentioned uh, two of the four uh, fundamental principles coming out of the uh, Declaration, the Geneva Declaration for Human Rights at Seas. The, the first one being that human rights are universal, they apply to everyone. The second one being that it's uh, it's, it's all persons at sea um, without any distinction. And then, uh, now the third one, uh, which, I, which I'm interested to get you to, to explain that a bit further, is that there are no maritime-specific reasons for denying human rights at sea. What are the the maritime-specific reasons that might be raised by a country or an organisation or individuals to to somehow try and justify denying human rights breaches? Yeah, yes. I mean, part of the the problem is precisely because um, if where there are human rights abuses happening at sea, they're happening a long way from anyone being able to police it or monitor it. So some of the maritime specific reasons might be that it's just too hard to police the oceans because they're so vast and we don't have the resources and the capacity to be able to do it. And one of the the key difficulties that's emerged with the illegal fishing industry is that you have people who essentially are sort of sold onto these ships um, in some instances, it's human trafficking that just ends up with providing these people to work on these ships. And then they, they stay out at sea for 
you know, a year or two at a time because they can transship the, the fish that they catch. So another ship comes and collects the fish catch from them. They can refuel and resupply at sea. So they don't need to come into port. So if they're not coming into port, then it's far more difficult to see, well, what are the conditions of the people who are being held on these ships? So, so part of the maritime specific issues is just that it's happening a long way from land and not everyone necessarily knows what's happening at sea. And if somebody is injured on this fishing vessel, then the person can essentially just be thrown overboard and no one is ever the wiser because of it. So, so those are the problems, but then the kind of response to that is just accepting that you know, first of all, states do have responsibilities to undertake the investigations, especially if their the ship is registered to them. Um, and if the ship is not registered or is a stateless vessel, then other states can potentially go and exercise jurisdiction over those ships as well if they were to come across them. And certainly when ships do come into port, then that's going to be a key time to investigate if there are abuses or if people need to have, you know, investigations into rights violations and remedies sought and that can extend into labour conditions for people on board if they've not been paid or um, paid insufficiently for what they were contracted for. Yeah, well, we had an incident uh, in New Zealand in the, in the South Island in Christchurch. Now, I can't r- recall, it was a couple of years ago, whether it was Taiwanese uh, or Korean. It was certain it was a, a, an Asian country. One of their fishing vessels uh, came in and docked it uh, in Christchurch. And uh, uh, look, for whatever reasons, whether it was a tip-off or otherwise, uh, New Zealand labour inspectors uh, then spoke with uh, a lot of the, um, the fishermen and uh, realised that a lot of them hadn't been paid for many months, etc. So that then led to the vessel being, um, in essence, arrested uh, until the issue of these, uh, these fishermen uh, at least being paid some minimum entitlements was resolved, mm. and, and I think the, it was, the boat was under arrest for several months. Um, and, look, I, I guess this is uh, the, the enforcement action um, in action, um, uh, where rather than just having them come in, refuel, uh, you know, fill up with food and, and whatever else and then carry on, is to make sure that these people are being properly looked after. Um, I mean, that's one way mm. it could work. Yes, definitely, and I think there's more of an onus to do that now. I mean, traditionally, what the the approach has been that the flag state continues to have responsibility over a ship when it comes into port, and the idea has been that even though that ship is sort of in the port of another country, that things like the labour laws of that country don't apply on that ship because otherwise, you know, a ship that goes sails around between 10 different countries. It can't have 10 different labour laws applying and that just makes it too complicated. So we have sort of basic international standards and that's all well and good when you have, you know, people who are being <laughs> who are being paid, they've got decent work conditions, they've been properly trained for the jobs that they're doing. You know, that can be all, all okay, but... What we are instead seeing is the reality that, um, you know, the cheap labour means that you're not necessarily providing 
you know, good healthcare, proper food, proper training uh, to people on ships. And I think we've kind of passed this point where it's just it's poor labour conditions. So it really is human rights violations. And then I think it well, is incumbent on port states to act in that situation. Well, isn't it just trying to tackle what's effectively modern day slavery? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, uh, it, it's very much in that zone. So a lot comes down to the legislation that individual countries have in place, and hoping that the legislation itself goes so far as to criminalise actions that happen perhaps outside the territory, but the perpetrators come within territory. Yeah. Now, the the fourth fundamental principle is that all human rights established under both treaty and customary international law must be respected at sea. Um, Practically, how's that going to work? Like, how would a country, um, just any individual country, uh, no point me naming any, but just any individual country go, all right, well, um, uh, we've got to be aware of all the other treaties and customary international law and if we're going to be uh, investigating or policing or monitoring, uh, we've, we've got to be across those treaties and uh, customary international laws. Uh, isn't that a, a significant educational or upskilling jump that, that, that nations that sign up for this declaration will have? Well, I think it, it probably sounds much bigger than it would be in reality because you figure that that particular principle has to operate within the confines of the law of the sea, which provides only limited bases to exercise law enforcement jurisdiction over foreign flag vessels when they are outside your territorial sea. So you figure it's going to be an education of the law enforcement officers, whether it's your Coast Guard or the Australian Border Force. And then they're going to have to know, and they should know it anyway, <laughs> what are the human rights that are going to apply when they're conducting a law enforcement operation. And it should be part of their rules of engagement as well. If they come across people who seem to be victims of human rights abuses in that. I think at the moment, perhaps one of the problems is that, you know, there could be an inspection of a fishing vessel and the inspectors go on and they go, well, have you only taken southern bluefin tuna? Have you only taken the correct amount of southern bluefin tuna? Have you used the correct gear? But the inspectors aren't necessarily going, oh, and tell me about the work conditions of the people who caught that fish. So at the moment, I think there's that limited authority that they have that part of the point of the Geneva Declaration is saying, well, if you have a legal basis to go onto another ship, then you need to also take into account those possible human rights violations. And the standard that we use for the application of human rights at sea is that once there is effective control over another ship, then that's the point that human rights obligations would start to apply. So do you want me, if I give you an example, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, give us an example. Sounds sounds good. So Australia and its, its charming policy of um, pushing back the boats. So Australia these are these, are, these are refugees that have arrived on yeah. a boat. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we have irregular migrants who are trying to come to Australia by boat, and Australia has a policy of sort of turning them back or preventing them from arriving within our waters. 
So what was apparently happening under Tony Abbott was that the Australian Border Force officials were, they would go to those particular ships that were trying to enter Australian waters and if the ship was unseaworthy, then in the course of sort of performing a rescue, they might take the people on board the Australian uh, vessel. At that point, once they've taken them on board, they're exercising effective control. The other thing the Australian government did was to put them on um, life rafts that the Australian government supplied and they would tow these life rafts to the edge of Indonesia's territorial sea, make sure there was enough fuel, water, food, medical supplies and say, go back to Indonesia. But the moment Australia is towing people on that ship, then they also owe human rights obligations to them. So what that means for irregular migrants and particularly for asylum seekers is that they have a right to have their claim heard in that regard and they certainly have a right not to be returned to a place where they might fear uh, persecution or where they might be subjected to cruel, inhuman uh, or degrading treatment. So so that that's sort of the, the point that we need to get to where these you know, law enforcement officials realise that the moment that they're exercising powers over individuals, then they need to respect the human rights that might be involved, whether it's due process rights, whether it's rights associated with being a refugee, right not to be detained. So so that's where it sort of, it feeds in. So I don't think it's sort of like this massive universe of information that has to be shared. It's probably just a more specific educational roundabout when you're in these situations, this is what you need to bear in mind and not ignore that actually applies. It's not just about policing, it's about individual victims as well. Okay, so do you think that the uh, the Geneva Declaration for the, the Human Rights uh, Law of the Sea, uh, do you think this would give individual countries like Australia and New Zealand uh, a, a bit of a, a framework so that our domestic laws can be uh, created, drafted, to be consistent with the declaration? Yes, I think that's a really important aspect in the end because if a state is going to be asserting jurisdiction, then it needs to have the domestic authority to be able to do it. So it's not enough for a state to say, well, yes, sure, all our human rights obligations apply in the territorial sea as much as they do on land, if they don't then have like a modern slavery act that would be available for them to use as a basis to prosecute somebody who is committing that kind of crime. So so there does need to be that change in domestic legislation. And one of the, the things about the Geneva Declaration is that it does sort of try and, and urge states to take the domestic law into account and it's going to be, I think, a, a dual track that needs to be followed because it's not just about sort of the international laws and its recognitions, it's also about changing the domestic framework and without having those, those sort of both, <laughs> both aspects going at the same time, it's going to be a lot more difficult to really follow through on some of the international obligations that that do apply in this situation. Okay, so there's going to require a little bit of commitment of politicians to to champion uh, making sure mm. that 
human rights at sea are, are going to be respected and that the, the, there's at least the, the legal framework in place um, that will enable uh, the principles of the Geneva Declaration to, to hopefully be met. Uh, I guess that's, that, that's the hope, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if we can make some steps towards that, I mean, even if you take into account, I've referred to the fishing example a few times, there is a a convention that's been adopted by the International Labour Organization that addresses sort of minimum standards of, of work conditions for fishers. And it still only has 20 countries that have become parties to that. I, I don't think either Australia or New Zealand are parties to it. Uh, the United Kingdom is, and Thailand, which is a country of concern for this practice, um, is a party to that treaty. So perhaps for Australia and New Zealand, uh, you know, something they could consider would be becoming parties to that treaty and then encouraging other countries to do so and then implementing it into their domestic law. So that would be a positive step forward uh, in that regard. Certainly be one area where where both Australia and New Zealand could um, lift their game um, and Mm. take some positive steps in that regard. Well, yes, I think Australia and New Zealand, just given their, their... their standing in the world, their strong support for you know the rules-based order, as it's called. I think they've got a great opportunity to perhaps take this on as an issue and and rally other countries to it. And we've seen this kind of phenomenon happen in international law in the past, where perhaps an NGO comes forward and and says, you know, we really need to ban cluster munitions or ban landmines and they've managed to get a country that's willing to sort of support that initiative and take it through and it ended up as a treaty. So I think for, for human rights at sea, we're probably going to need that kind of support from countries like Australia and New Zealand, which um, are supportive of these principles and would normally follow those rules um, in their everyday practice. Um, where do organisations like Greenpeace or in particular Sea Shepherd, where, where do they fit in the equation of all of this? Well, Sea Shepherd's more like a direct action group because they, they're they operating at sea and uh, they're extremely good in terms of bringing exposure to particular issues. I mean, certainly we saw that with uh, the whaling in um, Antarctic waters by Japan Um you know, 10 years ago when they were very active there. And also Sea Shepherd continues to, you know, really work to sort of expose uh, issues related to uh, conservation and management of sea species. So they'll they'll go out and they'll gather information about, um, you know, illegal fishing of turtles or something. They've been operating around the Galapagos. And at one point they were going to be helping Palau uh, police their um, big shark uh, marine protected area around Palau. So there's you've just got to be careful because at the end of the day, Sea Shepherd's a private organisation. It doesn't actually have policing powers, but there should be a way to harness the type of information they get and to be able to use that to follow through so law enforcement officials can actually go and act and uh, take action where necessary. Now, look, you, you mentioned sharks, and uh, your, um, which a, a lot of listeners may not click on to straight away, 
uh, I think it would be fair to say that you're, you're possibly one of the, the, the few international law experts on sharks. Um, and the reason why I say that is uh, I did a look for what books there were on the law of sharks, and I only came across one, and you're a co-author, um, which is the International Law of Sharks, Obstacles, Options and Opportunities. Now, that was published back in 2017. Um, uh, what, what, what prompted you to want to write a book about the law of sharks? Well, it was with my colleague Erica Tichero, who is the co-author, because we were both teaching at Macquarie Uni at the time, and I was very interested in the whaling issue, and Erica was the one who said, well, come on, what about the sharks? and all the issues surrounding conservation and management of sharks. And uh, so she really brought me to this issue and um, just, uh, you know, an incredible realisation that for all the sort of phobia we have around sharks and shark attacks, in the end, humans are killing something like 100 million sharks per year. I mean, there's really no contest when it comes to sharks killing humans and vice versa. The humans are winning by a long mile. So... Hands down. It, it was just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that, you know, we still know so little about so many different species of sharks. There's different estimates as to how many species of sharks there are, but really we only know about the conservation status of about a quarter of them. We tend to get very focused on sort of the megafauna, the great white shark, um, you know, in, in Australia, we're interested in the whale shark as well around Ningaloo Reef. And in Europe, they have the basking shark as their sort of very large shark in their waters. Um, and then what was sort of interesting from the international law perspective was just that there's such a patchwork of regulation around it. And it's such a big issue because the sharks, once you sort of target an apex predator, then that has effects down the food chain. So, for example, in Australia, uh, where we have a lot of Indonesian fishers who come into some of the northern waters, they were fishing a lot for sharks. But once you removed all the sharks, then there was a surplus of jellyfish and the jellyfish will eat the prawn and there goes the Australian prawn industry as a result of that. So we kind of needed the sharks to be able to eat the jellyfish to be able to preserve the prawn. So... So you have to take into account what happens when you're sort of taking out one major species from um, from the food chain and the flow-on effects it has, and also for sharks because they've got you know low fecundity. It takes them a long time to have babies and produce new sharks and so forth. So that's another consideration about when you you start overfishing a species. So, so all of that sort of biological aspects around sharks and feeding into the lack of knowledge, plus we had this patchwork, it was just something that really needed to get some attention and we needed to focus a lot more on. Well, look, you, your book certainly does. Um, I had a bit of a read of it uh, a couple of days ago uh, from what I could um, get on, on the internet. It's, it's actually not available at... Um, the, the Auckland High Court Law Library and I and I think I may make a suggestion to them they need to rectify that because um, actually I did find it interesting but more importantly and kind of linking into it all is um, one of the points that's made um, at the uh, at the towards the end of your book and in chapter 11 you, you 
you make the point that the lessons derived from the international law regime for sharks um, can hold true for the conservation and management of, of a lot of other marine species. I mean, it's uh, the, the, the takeout I took from that is that all the issues that you were pointing to about this patchwork of regulation and governance and, and how it's quite inadequate mm-hmm. can equally be applied to other marine species. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so, so in many ways, whilst I, I took it, you weren't just highlighting some of the a lot of the issues and concerns around the, the, the lack of legislative framework and regulation for sharks, it was actually more around other marine species as well because the same arguments mm. apply. Is, is, is that, did I pick the point up right? Yes, I mean, I, I think generally you could be talking about marine biodiversity and the difficulties that emerge around marine biodiversity is, that you need to sort of consider the the ecosystem. So we talk about ecosystem management and ecosystem services and things like that that need to be taken into account when you're planning how you're going to manage any any one species. But everything is very connected. And in the law of the sea, it's always very tricky because, you know, we divide the oceans into different maritime zones. I mean, I've mentioned the territorial sea. We also have the exclusive economic zone. We have the high seas. So different states have different rights in depending on where they are at one time. And so even if a coastal state, like I gave the example of Palau, has declared all of their exclusive economic zone to be a shark sanctuary, well, the moment that silly shark, you know, swims outside of the EEZ, it can be caught on the high seas. So it means that any kind of marine biodiversity has to take into account the areas that are under national jurisdiction as well as the areas beyond national jurisdiction. And is it just species specific or do we need to look at how different species interrelate because bycatch is a big issue. So I, I think part of what we really need at the end is a lot more coordination across all the different initiatives that are happening. So I think a a big part for us in in the book was just trying to think through, well, how can you get better cooperation between the different agencies and entities that are dealing with these issues, whether they're regional fisheries management organisations, whether there's regional seas organisations as well, then there's an overarching international organizations so they all need to be talking to each other and they don't always do that and it means that you know even if one has a great initiative it isn't necessarily taking into account what another is doing and that's true for sharks it's true for whales and and it's just a general problem we have with marine biodiversity so yeah it's a, a fair take out that the the situation of sharks is not necessarily unique yeah, and look, I mean, you make the point that there's there's clearly a recognition of a of a pressing need to improve international governance because it's appropriate and necessary to attempt a restoration on a global scale, and, and your point's well made that um, you can put in place all the regulations and laws you like in Palau, but that is not going to save a species uh, um, once it then leaves uh, the water that um, uh, is the catchment area or covers the, 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 the rules in that area. Um, so, look, you know, 
what 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 can be done? Like, is there is there a solution um, towards this? Is it a matter of getting nations to all adopt a, a standard set of rules and procedures? Mm, well, there has been talk in the past about whether we need a, a like a shark specific treaty, for example. But I think it is it's probably more looking at the cooperation aspect, and what we really need is like formalized channels of communication that exist between, you know, for example, the law enforcement officials of, of one country being able to call the law enforcement officials of another country and go, hey, we've just seen this ship come up on, on some satellite read we have and it's heading, it's into your waters now, you should send out a ship. So we've got to have that kind of coordination. We need to have that broader agreement around which are the species that need protection. And if they're protected under one treaty, they should probably be protected under another treaty as well. And we don't always have um, alignment there. And and I just think if we could actually, you know, it's, it's a very kind of technical nuts and bolts. If you could just talk to each other a bit more, then I think there would be greater ways of just putting in place uh, some better plans. So... Uh, it's it's just such a complex um, interlocking system in the end. So it's just kind of working through what what are going to be some of the the ways that that can be done. Would there be an opportunity here to create a framework and some procedures in relation to sharks um, that could then be used as a I guess a template or a model um, for other endangered species. Yeah, well, we have already the Food and Agricultural Organization adopted an international plan of action on sharks and that's sort of predicated on the idea that um, states adopt uh, national plans of action or regional plans of action and that can be quite helpful and also if you have sort of learning between different regional plans of action as well, so getting some... Um, synergies between the different approaches that uh, governments make. Erica always talked in terms of a toolbox and having different tools available for countries to, um, you know, be able to draw on what's sort of best practice or what's model legislation on this. And also for sharks, um, under the Convention on Migratory Species, there's also a separate memorandum of understanding on sharks, and that's far more detailed in some respects than the IPOA um, on sharks, but it only applies to those species of sharks that are protected by the Convention on Migratory Species. And there are sharks that are not migratory, so they're not covered by, by that regime. So... We've got some things out there, but it's you either have a choice of something that's comprehensive in terms of covering all the shark species, but it's not uh, very specific in what you have to do, or you have something that's far more specific in what you have to do, but only covers a limited number of sharks. Uh, but either, you know, so a lot's going to depend politically whether countries accept that as a model for other species. Um or not, whether you think that might work for sea turtles, for example, um, would just be a matter of political decision, I think, rather than perhaps for conservation status. 
I guess uh, politicians probably think they get a, a bit more political mileage out of uh, advocating for cute sea turtles over uh, poor old sharks that have a bit of a bad rap. You know, I'm not laying mm. the blame at George Lucas's feet for producing Jaws, <laughs> um, but that certainly didn't you help. You <laughs> It <laughs> didn't help. Exactly. Uh, and, and look, the, the Great White is actually uh, a, a really good case example of a migratory um, endangered shark. Mm. Um, I mean, it, um, both New Zealand and Australia uh, are privileged to have uh, Great Whites visit our waters. Um, uh, they are impressive creatures, and I can I can I can say this. I'd, um, it's a podcast, so I can't share my photographs with listeners. Uh, but I've had three, uh, four. I've had four days of uh, of, of sitting in a cage uh, photographing great whites down in Stewart Island. Uh, uh, they are awe-inspiring and impressive creatures to watch in their natural habitat. Mm. And, 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 and to bring it back to law, because this is a, a legal podcast, um, uh, our Supreme Court even had to consider this whole issue of the shark diving because... Uh, an operator set up uh, out of Bluff, which is at the bottom of the South Island, and would take its um, its divers uh, uh, a few nautical miles south um, to to Stewart Island, to an island off uh, Stewart Island called Edwards Island, uh, and put the divers in the water. Uh, but this upset uh, a lot of the the local Abalone um, uh, power divers, mm. who commenced. Legal action and tried to get it stopped. Now, you know, New Zealand has its own Wildlife Act, um, which has regulations and, and prohibits interference with uh, with with protected species. And the argument was, well, look, you know, you're uh, you're interfering with the, the great whites' um, natural environment by by doing this. And ultimately, the Supreme Court didn't accept the arguments and said, well, look, as long as um, you're not feeding the sharks um, and you're just there mm. to observe, then uh, then that's totally fine. And and that, that um, I, I guess, that experience that people can have, sorry, this isn't a plug for the shark experience and bluff, but they are great people, um, uh, in case Mike's listening, uh, is that that carries on. Um, but our season is December through to May, and I know from, from what I've been told, two fun facts. Uh, one is that the that our great whites um, will travel um, back up the Tasman Sea um, uh, all the way up towards um, uh, the Pacific Islands, and they'll spend a bit of time up there and then travel um, uh, back down uh, for um, for feeding, feeding on uh, young seals. Um, and the other uh, fun fact that I was told um, was that uh, despite... Um, uh, the human race recording uh, the intimate details of most species. There's never been a recording of great whites mating. It's, they've 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 recorded some reef sharks, and they think possibly the same thing happens, uh, but they've never actually recorded um, uh, two great whites uh, uh, mating. So, a little fun fact there. Yep, did not know that about great whites, I have to say. But, uh, but on your point around the, the New Zealand case, though, the, it was interesting you said that because the court said that because they were not being fed, and that has actually been one of the really controversial points around some of the um, sort of shark tourism. Is they, I think they call it chumming or where they're, they're 
mm. providing food to the sharks and then the effect that that has. So there's, I mean, around your ecotourism, there's also some interesting laws that have developed around that. And we have regulations in Western Australia with the whale sharks around how close boats can get, how close divers can get to them. And we've had regulations around the, the baiting of them too. So, so you know, even even though <laughs> even your holiday experiences, there's no escaping the law. And as I said, the law of the sea is everywhere. So you know, well, we're, we're surrounded by it. All you know, manner this of is, yeah, but Exactly. Living down under, you we're surrounded by it. This is how. Our ancestors arrived was uh, during uh, great migrations across the sea. We were totally reliant on the sea when it comes to you know our goods and services and uh, etc. Um, I haven't seen a uh, a cruise liner come back into Auckland uh, yet since uh, uh, the borders open. Have you seen any cruise liners coming into Sydney Harbour? Yeah, we've we've just had our first one come back in, so uh, that was certainly a very controversial issue, as you probably know, for Australia and particularly for Sydney with the, the Ruby Princess mm-hmm. at the time. So, and again, there was lots of international law issues tied up in cruise ships and whether they were allowed to come into port, whether we could force them to leave. That was another interesting issue that came up. And, uh, you know, to circle back to the human rights discussion, what about the people who were working on those ships and their conditions, particularly once they got sick and who was responsible for those workers? So, uh, yes, cruise ships have their own specific <laughs> issues under under criminal law and law of the sea, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, look, I'm um, sorry, and I, I don't want to circle back to, to, to sharks because we have covered quite a bit and I'd encourage anyone to, to read your book It's uh, who's got an interest in this area. But um, uh, is it, it's, 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 uh, Nungaloo Reef um, has the big whale sharks. So I think I've seen photographs of it on, on Instagram. Is, have I got that mm. right? Is that where I, where I can I can go and yes, swim with it? Yes, that's right, Nungaloo yeah. Reef. Yep. And, and you mentioned Palau. I haven't, have you been to Palau? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, look, my partner Kath, she's um, she's a beautiful human, beautiful human being. Uh, one of the intre- one of the interests that we both share is in diving, and uh, she's been up to Palau a couple of times and rates it uh, extremely highly. Um, she's never mentioned the sharks, though. So I, I will that, that'll be part of our dinner conversation tonight. Um, well, look, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Natalie Klein. Thank you very much for joining us on the, uh, the the Law Down Under podcast. It's been an absolute privilege and, and a fascinating look at an area that I think escapes a lot of people's attention. Um, and uh, as we move forward with uh, you know with climate challenges and 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 pressure on resources uh, and a need for sustainability, I suspect the law of the sea will become more and more relevant. Uh, and you've certainly given uh, me and 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 our listeners uh, a fascinating insight um, into this particular area. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Chris. It's been fun to chat. It's been great to chat. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.